My name is uh, Dr. Matthew Rimmer. I'm a professor of intellectual property and innovation law at QUT, the Queensland University of Technology in Queensland, Australia. Uh, I've been kind of doing work on intellectual property for the last uh, couple of decades. So uh, my interest in the field predates the invention of the Creative Commons. Uh, but I've been kind of very interested in uh, open licensing and its expansion in a range of different fields. So I've kind of written about uh, copyright law and the Creative Commons. I have looked at um, the open source biology movement in the effort to try to counter gene patents. Um, I've been interested in uh, in the field of access to essential medicines, the use of open licensing to make um, medicines more accessible and available. Uh, I've also uh, been very interested in debates over climate change and the use of open licensing in relation to clean technologies like with Elon Musk. And at the moment I'm currently undertaking a project on intellectual property and 3D printing and uh, a number of 3D printing um, platforms rely upon Creative Commons licensing to make uh, 3D printing files available and accessible. So in a range of different kind of contexts I've been kind of interested in uh, open innovation and uh, creative ways to share new technologies. So do you want to just, um, building on all of this, tell me a broad overview of what it is that you do? Do you teach as well? Do you just do research? What's your... Uh, so I am the research leader of a group of 12 researchers at um, QUT. So uh, I run the Intellectual Property Innovation Law Research Program. And our work covers a number of different areas. Uh, it covers international trade and sustainable development, intellectual property, um, privacy, free speech and human rights, uh, innovation law and open access to knowledge. So we're the host of Creative Commons Australia. Uh, my colleague, Associate Professor Nick Suzel, um, kind of runs um, that uh, important resource. Uh, and my, my kind of work is a mixture of management and uh, research on, across a range of different fields. Quite a bit of teaching because we have a WIPO Masters program at QT, but lots of um, public policy work and community engagement, um, particularly in terms of law reform and social justice. So I know you talked a little bit about the project that you're working on right now. Are there any other specific projects that you want to talk about? Uh, well, we can talk about a wide range of different things, but I'm happy to talk about my current project. At the moment, I'm a chief investigator in an ARC uh, discovery project on intellectual property and 3D printing. Uh, this project uh, is meant to be a three-year project and we're kind of interested in looking at some of the challenges and opportunities presented by 3D printing for copyright law and designs law and trademark law and patent law um, and questions about open licensing and in addition to intellectual property also thinking about larger questions about uh, the regulation of uh, such an emerging disruptive technology. Um, so it's a three-year project. Um, what point are you at in it? 
I, I, we're in the uh, first year of the project, so I've kind of used the grant money of the project to appoint a couple of our early career researchers, Dr Kylie Papalado and Dr Hope Johnson, to do some theoretical and empirical research in relation to the project. Uh, my interest in the field goes back um, further than that, uh, so I kind of went to see uh, a World Maker Fair in 2014, uh, which was a fabulous carnival of ingenuity and invention, uh, kind of culminating in the men who put Mentos into Coke, kind of doing a symphony of, of various different kind of um, <laughs> explosive activities. Uh, I also saw the Maker Caucus, um, from the US Congress um, who are off at a conference and they kind of exist to try to um, promote law reform to assist education and innovation in relation to 3D printing in the United States. And I visited um, Public Knowledge, a civil society organisation in Washington DC who have been very kind of active in um, trying to educate legislators and policy makers about 3D printing uh, and have hosted um, 3D DC events. Uh, but in Australia there, there is a significant interest in 3D printing and additive manufacturing across a number of different sectors. So uh, in the creative arts there's been a lot of interest in terms of how 3D printing can be deployed um, in relation to art and design and even things like filmmaking. In our neighbours in New Zealand um, have been very creative with the use of 3D printing. So um, Peter Jackson's um, Weta Workshop uh, uses 3D printing to, for instance, make all the armoury for the Battle of the Five Armies and The Hobbit. Um, but th there's also some more scientific applications in relation to 3D printing as well. So in Australia there has been quite an interesting use of 3D printing in relation to health and medicine in terms of bioprinting. So at QT where I work, the um, researchers for instance have been developing with 3D printing prosthetic ears for kids um, who are born without fully developed ears. Um, the surgeons in some of the Queensland's hospitals have um, use bioprinting when they have to kind of do quite exacting um, kind of uh, replacements of bones that have been shattered and need to be kind of replaced. Um, so, so there's lots of really interesting development in relation to healthcare. There's also been some um, significant exploration of 3D printing of waste materials as well. So the University of New South Wales in Sydney has been experimenting with, with that. Um, there's also been uh, nanotechnology um, being deployed in relation to 3D printing. Uh, so kind of interesting scientific applications. Um, but so, some other countries have started to really integrate 3D printing in terms of industrial manufacturing. So in the United States, Boeing uses 3D printing in terms of its design of airplanes. General Electric are using 3D printing in relation to its operations. Um, I've become very interested in 3D printing of cars. So while I'm in Canada, I'm visiting Windsor okay. uh, to have a chat about the use of additive manufacturing in relation to car repairs. 
Um, NASA has a 3D printer on its space station, so in case of emergency they can make whatever they might need up on the space station rather than having to improvise with gaffer tape. Um, so one of the really interesting things about 3D printing is that it's still an emerging technology and uh, we still don't know its full potential yet. Um, in terms of policy and regulation, which you touched on briefly, do you see a huge difference between um, Australia's approach versus a country like the United States? Well, a lot of the early litigation over 3D printing has taken place in the United States. Uh, so Katy Perry has been an early player in the battles over uh, intellectual property and 3D printing. Um, during her Super Bowl performance, she was rather upstaged by one of her backup dancers, Left Shark, who was dancing in a very uncoordinated manner. Left Shark became this internet meme and a maker called Fernando Sosa um, made a 3D printed version of Left Shark and made it available on Shapeways. Uh, uh, Katy Perra's lawyers threatened copyright action and tried to get a trademark uh, protection in relation to Left Shark. Christopher Sprigman, who works at New York University, represented uh, Fernanda Sosa and argued that you couldn't have copyright protection in um, something as functional as a shark outfit and questioned whether or not there was anything distinctive in relation to the trademarks. We're starting to see some more patent lawsuits, particularly in the United States. Uh, the documentary on Netflix, Print the Legend, has some interesting insights into battles between startups and some more well-established 3D printing companies um, over patents. Um, in the last month, there's been a really interesting action by Desktop Metal against Mark Forged alleging patent infringement and trade secrets breaches in relation to metal 3D printing. Uh, so that there's been a kind of a range of different sorts of disputes that have been breaking out. 3D printing is kind of interesting in terms of it raises some very kind of classical issues in relation to intellectual property, as well as some more unique issues as well. So um, Professor Mark Lemery from Stanford Law School has written a, a nice article about uh, intellectual property in a world without scarcity. The kind of concern is that 3D printing is a disruptive technology that will create great abundance of, of different sorts of works. In terms of uh, the issues that have arisen in relation to copyright law, some of them are related to questions about copyright subsistence, what is in the public domain, what can be protected by copyright, what is the relationship between copyright law and designs law. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States decision in Star Athletica took a very expansive view of copyright to include fashion designs of cheerleaders' outfits and that might have very significant implications for 3D printing companies. Um, a lot of the 3D printing companies put in friend of the court briefs kind of trying to outline their position in that dispute. Obviously there's a lot of interest in the question of intermetry liability. Uh, a lot of the 3D printing platforms have to grapple with safe harbours and takedown notices. Uh, 3D printing raises kind of questions about um, copyright exceptions. The United States has a broad defence of fair use. 
Canada has a flexible defence of fair dealing, as developed by uh, Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin. Uh, Australia has a much more limited defence of fair dealing. Um, so there are very significant differences between different jurisdictions. Um, for designs law, I think 3D printing raises larger questions, particularly about um, whether or not designs law needs to be modernised. Uh, there are issues in terms of the operation of exceptions, like the right to repair. For patent law, uh, I guess there are particular issues about defences like experimental use um, and what experimentation is permissible. So it's kind of interesting in terms of what issues have been coming up in relation to intellectual property and 3D printing, but 3D printing has broken down and collapsed some of the traditional historical divisions between the different forms of intellectual property. But there's also other regulatory issues as well. So there's been big scandals over the so-called Liberator project, uh, which involves 3D printing guns, which has been highly controversial. Um, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States um, has tried to develop new regulations in relation to bioprinting. And um, in Australia, the TGA has also been um, promulgating new proposals in relation to the regulation of bioprinting. Uh, but there, there are other regulatory issues as well, you know, maybe kind of issues like product liability and consumer rights and competition will become quite important as well as that, those other issues as well. And can you tell me, um, just thinking about your recent work, um, about a moment where you felt a real sense of success? Uh, well, uh, I kind of work across a range of different kind of fields. Sometimes success can be quite unexpected. So the most influential thing that I ever did was to push for the introduction of plain packaging of tobacco products in Australia. Um, and I was drafted by a couple of tobacco control experts, Becky Freeman and Simon Chapman, to help, help them with their campaign. Uh, I'd done a lot of work on access to essential medicines. At, at the time, it wasn't even an issue on the table. I, I didn't teach the subject, I didn't research on the subject. Uh, but uh, even, even though I was kind of moving beyond my kind of usual interests, it's certainly the thing that's had the biggest impact that I've ever done because the Health Minister and then Attorney General Nicola Roxon took up the proposal and pushed ahead with plain packaging tobacco products defeated Big Tobacco in the High Court of Australia um, and the Commonwealth of Australia won 6-1 uh, in uh, the challenge by Big Tobacco against the constitutional validity of the plant packaging legislation. Australia has apparently uh, won in the World Trade Organisation against a challenge by five countries to the legitimacy of plant packaging under the TRIPS agreement and the Technical Barriers to Trade Agreement and the GATT Agreement. Australia has also fended off an investor-state dispute settlement action um, by uh, Philip Morris um, under an obscure Hong Kong-Australian investment agreement. Uh, so my kind of work in that field um, has been surprisingly successful and influential. Uh, we've just published a new open access Creative Commons license special edition 
of the QT Law Review on the plain packaging of tobacco products, looking at the revolution that Australia has kicked off around the world. Uh, so uh, Nicola Roxon has, has written a foreword, but we look at how other countries have followed Australia's lead, like Ireland and England and France. Um, Canada, under Justin Trudeau, is currently considering adopting plain packaging of tobacco products. Um, and just in the past week, Sri Lanka has said that it will um, adopt plain packaging of tobacco products. Uh, the empirical evidence that we have is that plain packaging of tobacco products is a very effective means of kind of reducing tobacco consumption. It complements other tobacco control measures. Um, it counters the misleading and deceptive advertising of the tobacco industry and helps implement the World Health Organization Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. So that, that kind of experience is a good example of uh, how uh, academics and researchers and commoners uh, sometimes benefit from shifting context and trying out their ideas in a slightly different context. And you know, my engagement with, for instance, some of the work of Naomi Klein on the No Logo movement certainly kind of fed into uh, the push for plain packaging of tobacco products and the stripping away of advertising from packaging and having the behavioural nudge of graphic health warnings. Interesting. Um, can you tell me maybe about uh, either a current challenge or a recurring challenge that you've faced in your work? A, a, a kind of a key challenge, uh, particularly in Australia, is the way in which international trade agreements has affected uh, intellectual property. So. Our intellectual property laws have really been transformed by the TRIPS Agreement in 1904 and then the Australia-United States Free Trade Agreement in 2004 and some subsequent uh, trade agreements. At the moment, the Australian Government under Malcolm Turnbull is pushing for the adoption of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, the intellectual property chapter is quite expansive. Uh, the investor-state dispute settlement regime in that agreement is quite concerning. Uh, there's also kind of an electronic commerce chapter as well. I mean, I think grappling with secretive trade agreements is particularly challenging because they kind of aggregate lots of different issues uh, and it's very hard for there to be public in, um, input and civil society input and expert input into those negotiations. Um, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, has sought to moderate the Trans-Pacific Partnership and has suspended some of the most controversial provisions um, in the intellectual property chapter. There's still some nasty provisions there, like the push for civil in, uh, remedies and criminal um, offences in relation to trade secrets. There's, there's limitations of investor-state dispute settlement, but probably they don't go far enough. Uh, so. I, I think that has been very challenging, having international trade investment agreements impact upon dis domestic decision-making in relation to intellectual property. And they raise really kind of profound issues across a whole wide range of regulatory fields. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership impacts upon um, copyright law and the Creative Commons. Uh, it has very expansive provisions in relation to well-known trademarks. 
and the measures in relation to patents and biologics would have a very significant impact upon access to essential medicines. Uh, and there are concerns that the provisions on trade secrets could be abused um, and could adversely impact journalists and whistleblowers and civil society activists. Uh, and, you know, there's been a larger concern about the inclusion of investor state dispute settlement clauses in trade agreements. You know, Australia had the experience of fighting big tobacco over plain packaging of tobacco products in investor state dispute settlement. Canada, um, under NAFTA, had to fight Ally Lilly um, in respect of investor state dispute settlement over the rejection of drug patents. I think one of the really significant trends has been intellectual property owners and holders using these special powers um, in relation to investor state dispute settlement to challenge government decision making in relation to intellectual property. And those trade agreements never seem to really die. So, you know, the zombie-like Trans-Pacific Partnership has been revived um, and now uh, President Donald Trump, after saying that he was taking the United States out of that agreement has now said that he is contemplating renegotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership. However, he has qualified his comments to say that he would want the deal to be on much better terms than those negotiated by President Barack Obama. Um, looking back over the last year, what was the most significant change that's taken place um, in your work? Over the past year, I've been doing a lot of work wrapping up um, some of my research on intellectual property and the environment and climate change. And that was very much focused upon some of the negotiations going on in relation to international climate law. Uh, with the Paris Agreement, we kind of have a framework for global action in relation to climate change. But unfortunately, there's been a lack of consensus on what to do in relation to intellectual property and clean technologies and climate change. Uh, so in the past year, I've been kind of putting together a collection on intellectual property and clean energy, Paris Agreement and climate justice, trying to kind of promote a better conversation about the environmental ramifications of intellectual property. So... The Creative Commons, I think, does need to re-engage with the environmental commons. Um, you know, uh, climate change is a massive global challenge and intellectual property does affect it in a number of different ways. So there are certainly significant issues in relation to patents and clean technologies. Elon Musk has used open licensing to make his electric vehicles at Tesla and his batteries more openly accessible. There's been a lot of discussion about the use of trademark law, um, so the use of eco-labels. So, for instance, the Nordic swan uh, has been used to kind of signify certain environmental standards. There have been lots of scandals over greenwashing. So Volkswagen is before the courts in Australia over Dieselgate, cheating in terms of its uh, carbon emission tests. Um, there's also some very significant issues relating to copyright law and database protection and environmental and climactic data. Um, so there's a lot of discussion about uh, how best to make uh, 
climate and environmental information open and accessible. There's been a lot of concern that the Trump administration has been deleting important uh, environmental and climate data uh, and there has been a rebel alliance of archivists who have been busy trying to ensure that that data is kind of preserved. Um, in addition to that, I think um, plant breeders' rights and access to genetic resources and indigenous intellectual property also have very important and significant um, questions about the environment, biodiversity, climate change and sustainable development. Could you maybe talk just a little bit more about the role that you see Creative Commons and Open Access playing in the realm of the environment? Well, historically there have been a number of commons-based efforts to make clean technologies more accessible. So Creative Commons helped set up the Green Exchange Program, uh, but that has since folded. There, there was an eco-patent commons developed by um, Kapos um, when he was at IBM, but then he left to become director of the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and, and that has been uh, closed down. Elon Musk's initiative is an interesting one, but it, it remains to be seen whether his competitors and rivals will take up his offer. Uh, the World Intellectual Property Organisation has WIPO Green, which is designed to help facilitate transactions between IP holders and IP users to uh, license technology. And the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change has established a technology centre and network which is designed to help engage in research and development and diffusion of clean technologies. So there have been a number of different sharing initiatives. Some argue that we need to establish uh, stronger mechanisms. So for instance, in relation to access to essential medicines, we have the medicines patent pool. So some argue you need a kind of a, a patent pool. Uh, the, the issue though has become uh, very difficult with the emergence of the Trump administration. So the Trump administration has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement um, and have promoted exploitation of fossil fuels. Their big WTO dispute with China at the moment has led to a lot of conflict in relation to intellectual property. The United States Trade Representative has been kind of alleging that uh, China has um, violated the intellectual property rights of flagship American companies, including in relation to clean technology. So there's some particular allegations in relation to trade secrets. Um, so that's a much more kind of conflict-based model in relation to intellectual property. But if we're going to be able to take effective, substantive and meaningful action in relation to climate change, we do need to enable not only research and development in, in respect of clean technologies, but we do need to share those technologies um, widely uh, to reduce our carbon emissions. So I, I think the Creative Commons needs to re-engage with uh, its roots, uh, you know, the notion of the Commons, particularly as conceived by Eleanor Estrom and David Bollier and others, certainly kind of took into account environmental issues and questions. And I think it's a really significant and important um, dimension that um, the Creative Commons could make an important contribution towards. 
And thinking about your, your work specifically, what are you most looking forward to in the coming year? Uh, I, I, I think over the, the coming year, I'm kind of looking forward to putting on a, a conference on intellectual property and sustainable development. Um, so a lot of our uh, bright, young uh, PhD candidates are exploring various different dimensions of um, intellectual property and sustainable development. So Jessica Stevens, a PhD student, has been attending the Creative Commons Summit and she has been doing marvellous work on copyright law, open education and sustainable development. Uh, a couple of my students are looking at respectively access to essential medicines and plain packaging of, of tobacco products. Um, I think there's a new conversation to be had about intellectual property and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Now, a decade ago, with the WIPO Development Agenda and some of the work of John Barton, the late great Stanford professor, there was a discussion about intellectual property and the Millennium Development Goals. But I, th I think there's an opportunity to have a wider discussion about intellectual property, human rights, and sustainable development. So Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Laureate for Economics, has just co-authored a really interesting new piece of work looking at intellectual property and development, highlighting larger questions about equality. Um, and, and I think there is a new conversation to be had about how those various sustainable development goals interact with intellectual property. I mean, Francis Gary, the Director General of the World Intellectual Property Organization has given talks emphasizing the importance of intellectual property to innovation and, and how that might affect sustainable development. But I can see lots of interesting kind of issues that could be explored. Um, so for instance, um, there, there is a strong emphasis in the sustainable development goals upon um, gender equality. Um, it's been very noticeable that intellectual property has often um, been quite uh, discriminatory, uh, particularly if you kind of look at the figures of filings for um, industrial property. Uh, it's quite clear that there's been uh, very kind of a, a lack of equality in terms of who benefits from from intellectual property. So, so that that, for instance, could be a really interesting kind of issue. Um, but I'm kind of looking forward to putting on that event and kind of providing a good platform for. Uh, creative young high degree research students to explore all those different um, sustainable development goals that are there and think about some new connections that could be made to intellectual property. Can you describe for me um, your journey or your pathway into Creative Commons? So I know you talked about it a little bit um, in the beginning of the interview, but if you want to just kind of expand and elaborate. I guess it's a kind of a very long-standing engagement with the Creative Commons. I, as, as I said, uh, I, I was a student of intellectual property at both an undergraduate and a postgraduate level back in the 1990s. When I was doing my PhD, I was very kind of concerned about the problem of copyright term extensions. So one of my case studies looked at the Australian film Shine, and they were affected by the retrospective copyright term extension in the European Union. The work of Rachmaninoff 
um, was in the public domain and came back into protection under copyright law. So the producer had to fend off various claims in relation to economic rights and moral rights um, in relation to that uh, particular film. So my kind of interest in the problem of the copyright term extension kind of stems from there. And then I looked at the Eldred versus Ashcroft case, which was a kind of a constitutional challenge by Lawrence Lessig and Eric Eldred against the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, which was unsuccessful. Australia adopted um, a copyright term extension as part of the Australian-United States Free Trade Agreement. We didn't allow work that was already in the public domain to be restored, but it, it did have a very significant effect. Uh, we have been very concerned in Australia about the impacts of very long terms over vintage works. So, for instance, the classic Australian anthem by Men at Work, the Down Under song, um, was the subject of a copyright action by Larrikin Records over a, um, a Girl Guides song um, about um, kookaburras. Uh, and one of the judges in that dispute, um, although he did find Polarican Records, did express concerns about the enormously long term of copyright protection. So, as Lawrence, Lawrence Lessig said today in his speech, you know, the Creative Commons movement was really born out of the despair of some of the losses around uh, challenges to copyright term extension. So my kind of initial engagement with the Creative Commons movement uh, was really similarly born about that kind of engagement with those issues in relation to um, the copyright term extension. But since then I have written quite a bit about the Creative Commons movement in one way or another. Um, in my book um, on um, digital copyright, and the consumer revolution, I, around 2007, I looked at the early growth of the Creative Commons movement. Uh, as I said, I've been very interested in terms of how the precepts of the Creative Commons movement have been applied in other contexts, like agriculture and biology and medicine and clean technologies. Uh, I, I have uh, looked quite a bit at Commons projects, including Wikipedia, uh, at the moment, I've been very interested in intellectual property and 3D printing, including kind of mapping some of the commons projects that have emerged in relation to 3D printing and additive manufacturing and the maker movement. So I think one of the interesting things about the Creative Commons is that it helps facilitate the growth of new communities. So I think one of the challenges for the Creative Commons movement is to be adaptable and flexible and not just focus upon the traditional cultural fields of copyright law but also grapple with some of these scientific disciplines uh, and new emerging cultural forms and industrial modes of production. So I think 3D printing and additive manufacturing provides a really interesting challenge uh, for the Creative Commons movement. Sure. Um, Shifting to the commons more broadly now, what for you is the greatest threat to it? You talked a little bit about um, challenges that it has, but what would you characterize as the greatest threat to the commons? The greatest threat to the commons has been the enclosure movement. I, I mean, in a variety of different fields of intellectual property, intellectual property owners have boosted... Uh, uh, 
boosted longer, stronger uh, rights in relation to intellectual property. They've engaged in heavy political lobbying of parliaments and international organisations to try to achieve that goal. I think that has been very challenging for the Commons movement uh, to have in copyright law, Hollywood and the music industry and the publishers, pushing for copyright term extensions, trying to limit copyright exceptions, demanding uh, technological protection measures and digital locks. In Australia there's been new site blocking laws uh, that we still don't really know the full extent of their impact. Uh, so th that has been very kind of imbalanced. But there have been similar kind of concerning trends in other fields of intellectual property as well. So I, th I think the, there's a real challenge there for the community-based movement of the Creative Commons to try to represent and defend the public interest in um, various public policy debates because often there are not adequate voices to um, defend human rights and social justice and the public domain um, and the intellectual commons in some of these critical debates over intellectual property, innovation, trade and investment. Um, on the flip side of this, what makes you optimistic about the future of the commons? I think uh, the amazing ingenuity of uh, individuals gives some hope for the future of the commons. Um, I think in a variety of different fields, commons-based models of cooperative production could be very helpful and useful. And it is kind of pleasing to see over the last couple of decades um, the kind of growth and expansion and diversification of um, the Creative Commons movement. And, and it's not just the same old names and personalities dominating the field. There does seem to be a kind of concerted effort under the enlightened Canadian leadership of the Creative Commons to be inclusive and participatory and humanistic in terms of its approach. And, and I think that's quite an important shift. I mean, I think the Creative Commons movement cannot just be a technocratic um, service in relation to template contracts. I think it does need to engage with a wide range of different kind of communities. Of course, that kind of poses in sorts of challenges. Um, so one of the sessions that I was at at the Creative Commons Summit, we talked about the relationship between the Creative Commons and Indigenous intellectual property. And in an area like that, there are clearly tensions and challenges. Uh, but I, I think it is a useful um, inflection point for the Creative Commons to kind of grow into a stronger movement. I mean, doing a lot of work in other areas, um, like access to medicines and tobacco control and uh, climate change. Uh, it's been very noticeable in those areas. Civil society has kind of played a really important role in calling for um, balance in terms of intellectual property law reform. So I think it's really important to 
foster and develop social movements to support uh, meaningful and transformative change. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how you've used the commons to advance your own work or your own goals? Uh, well, uh, Creative Commons licenses have been a very useful means to help disseminate um, my work and the work of those that I edited. As I mentioned earlier in our conversation, we've just released a new special edition of the QT Law Review on plain packaging of tobacco products. We decided to use Creative Commons licenses to make that work as widely accessible as possible. We wanted other countries around the world not to be intimidated by the threats and bullying and lies of big tobacco. We wanted to kind of empower public health advocates and tobacco control advocates around the world with the best possible research that we could. Um, so in that kind of context, using Crowd Commons licences was an excellent way of achieving that aim and countering the disinformation and propaganda of um, the tobacco industry. Um, and how would you explain to someone else the link between a vibrant commons and a better world? Well, as I said before, I think there are lots of important connections between intellectual property and sustainable development. So. We can see that in a variety of the different sorts of the debates that have played out. So, for instance, in relation to copyright law, there is a very important movement to address disability discrimination. Uh, so the Marrakesh Treaty was a, a very important breakthrough moment in terms of getting nation states to agree to make uh, books and other cultural works more accessible for those with um, visual disabilities. Uh, I think that was a really important example of the role that copyright plays in relation to education. Um, in relation to um, other fields of intellectual property, there are very profound impacts in my work in respect of healthcare. Intellectual property has been a matter of life and death. So. Uh, when 39 of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies sued Nelson Mandela's South African government over uh, their use of generic medicines to combat HIV AIDS, uh, that was a very kind of profound um, battle with broad-ranging implications for the health of millions. Um, you know, likewise, the dispute over plain packaging of tobacco products is not merely an academic or theoretical one. Uh, the global tobacco epidemic uh, is massive throughout the world and has really real-life consequences for those who have become addicted to tobacco. But, you know, other areas like biodiversity and climate change are also impacted by intellectual property. So I think it's very important not just to think about intellectual property as an abstract regime made up of international treaties and legislation and case law. Uh, if we look at the real world operation of intellectual property, we realise that it has very profound implications for a whole host of global challenges around um, education and uh, 
uh, questions about public health and food security and access to clean energy and conservation of biodiversity. Uh, so in our day and age, intellectual property is central to many pressing global issues. And um, for you, what does it mean to support the commons? I think, uh, in my experience, um, there's a need for selfless advocates to both articulate the commons and forge the commons and also defend the commons. I think one of the concerning themes addressed throughout the Crave Commons Summit this year has been efforts to co-opt the commons in various different ways, to privatise the commons or enclose the commons. Um, and I think there is a need for a wide range of eloquent advocates to find um, powerful reasons for defending cultural commons and health commons and environmental commons and that takes bravery and courage to do so because there's lots of very well-organised, wealthy um, corporations and interests um, who want to uh, destroy and enclose the commons in various different ways. So I still find it a very kind of contested ground. And then just finally, um, is there anything else that you would like to talk about or add um, just in regards to your own work or the commons more generally? Uh, I, I kind of look forward to seeing uh, the Creative Commons movement achieve its full potential. I mean, as I have kind of mentioned in our interview, I think that means moving beyond thinking just about the cultural commons and information technology and grappling once again with questions around the scientific commons and dealing with questions in relation to agriculture and medicine and biotechnology. But I think it also means that the Creative Commons needs to get in, back in touch with um, the roots of its ther theoretical precepts and concepts and think about environmental commons and biodiversity commons and um, climate commons. I think there's a conversation that, that can be had by practitioners of the Creative Commons movement and environmentalists um, in their various efforts to protect um, public resources of various different kinds.